This episode is dedicated to Chris of Dopey. May you rest in peace and may your work on the Dopey podcast shine bright forever. If you're struggling with addiction, you should give up because it's already over. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Give up. Just give up. And I don't mean give up like it's just you lost. You know, it's okay. (laughs) Put your hands up and just walk away. And then and then this is the best thing. Okay, the best thing is that you already got as high as you're ever going to get. You you already did that. You the 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 possibility of of life, and I sound like some preacher, but I the possibility of life and recovery is limitless. The the possibility of using or drinking is you're gonna get drunk, you're gonna get high, and you're gonna have to do it again. That's what's gonna happen if you stay on that path. The possibility of sobriety is unlimited. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Happy five-year anniversary to the Dopey Podcast. God bless. Dave from the Dopey Podcast is a TV producer, host, turned heroin addict, turned waiter at Cat's Deli, turned father, turned person in recovery, turned podcaster. Dave was born and raised in New York City and lived there all his life except for seven miserable methadone-filled years in Los Angeles. Dopey has become the premier podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. Dopey gets around 40,000 downloads a week and has over 5 million total downloads. Dopey has featured guests included Mark Marin, Killer Mike, Kristen Johnston, Jamie Lee Curtis, Margaret Cho, Artie Lang, Dr. Drew, and many others. Dopey is heard on every continent of the globe with a loyal and incredibly active audience known as the Dopey Nation. The Dopey Nation constantly contribute their own drug-fueled stories of debauchery to the show, as well as art music and almost 20 Dopey-inspired tattoos. Dopey is all about addiction. The good, the bad, the unbelievably stupid and tragic. Dopey was created by Dave and Chris in 2016. They met in rehab in Connecticut about 10 years ago. Chris tragically died in July of 2018 relapsing and overdosing on cocaine and fentanyl. Dave never stopped making the show and continued on to push the dopey message as far as it can possibly go. Dave now lives on Long Island with his partner, Linda, and his two daughters, Nora, who is 10 years old, and Susan, who is two. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sober is Dope podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan. We're bringing in 2021 with a really special guest today. Today, we have Dave, who is the host of the Dopey podcast. Dave is a TV producer, um, TV host, turned heroin addict, turned recovering addict, and now podcaster. And he's also a father, husband, and friend to many. Dave, um, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Shout out to all of the heads in the Dopey Nation. How are you feeling today? I feel great, Pop. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a total pleasure and a joy to be on a sober podcast with another fellow New Yorker in recovery. It's a gift. 
Thank you very much. Yeah, you know, um, shoot, man, we we made so much noise in um, New York, Dave, going back. I mean, I'm sober eight years. My sober date is December um, 15, 2012. And, you know, I, I, I almost died out there in New York. And look, and, you know, it's not, it's, you know, with addiction, it's not always a traditional story, you know. Um, I was, you know, went to school, regular kid, just party hard. Didn't know I was allergic to alcohol, but always got caught up in crazy shit. And eventually it just took over my life. And uh, by the grace of God, I'm somehow here today with you. I would like to start off by saying, um, you know, paying homage to your co-host, Chris, who passed away in 2018. And um, that's always a sad thing to hear when we lose one of our fellow people in recovery. And when I was looking into Chris's story, it was the familiar narrative where, you know, someone is doing well and then, you know, they get into some type of accident and then they get prescribed these toxic ass painkillers that lead them into this terrible relapse and gripping death. And it's one of the hardest things we've been fighting and fighting trying to save kids on the ground. You know, um, you know, I work with my friends in Wake Up Carolina, Nancy Shipman and them and her son, um, and how he passed away. Regular kid just, you know, got into a bad accident, playing sports, prescribed painkillers, develop a terrible debilitating heroin addiction and later overdose. Mm-hmm. So um, segueing there, I know um, I want to start off kind of like there, um, and paying homage to Chris, what's your take on the whole um, current environment with um, the drug environment, the painkillers, heroin? And in your case, I know you spent seven years um, on methadone um, and you had to deal with that. What's your take on that whole subject? Well, it's, it's a it's a complicated and, and complex you know world. Like there are people, obviously, who get hurt. And they didn't, you know, plan to become addicts and they get prescribed some really strong uh, opioid or opiate or whatever. And they become hooked. And the next thing they know, they're they're just like uh, a drug addict. You know what I mean? That didn't happen to me. What happened to me was like I loved counterculture and I, and I loved the idea of getting high and being like like a music person or an artist or something. So I I went in through that kind of side door. Chris just wanted to get fucked up beyond everything else. He sought oblivion at all costs. And, and you know, when you, and I'm just going to, I can't speak for Chris because Chris is dead. Um, and I love Chris, you know, uh, tomorrow marks the fifth year of doing dopey. Tomorrow is our five year anniversary. And uh, so like I'm setting up our show and um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do like a big kind of clip show where we go right. back, you know, and um so I'm listening to a lot of Chris right now. So I have him kind of top of mind and uh, love Chris. He was 10 years younger than me. He was very smart. He knew addiction inside and out. And yes, he went on vacation. He injured his, his, you know, his butt or his leg or something. He, he tried to impress his girlfriend. He kicked a punching bag, but he knew better than to, than to go to a doctor and get prescribed opiates. It was, it was not happenstance. What happened to him? Okay. He, he, he like made the wrong decision because I don't think he was a hundred percent ready to be in it. Obviously he was not a hundred percent ready to be in it because he fell out of it. And, and the thing about Chris was, you know, he was a brilliant, brilliant mind uh, and, a, and a horrible addict and a horrible alcoholic as well. And 
that dude, but I met him when he was like 25 or something. You know, he had been to 15 full on rehabs at 25. Wow. When, when we started doing dopey, he, uh, he had two years clean. I had four months clean and, um, we were doing a really good job. Not, I mean, the show wasn't particularly like recovery centric. It was pretty much like, uh, drug stories and, and stupid, stupid shit. And we're having fun. You know what I mean? Like I just wanted it to be like chilling. And the thing with Chris is that his life, you know, like one of the greatest things about recovery and one of the greatest things that we all talk about as we get sober and get better is the way our worlds grow and our life expands. Like our, our world is so small when we're using and when we get clean, like so many things come into it and so many opportunities and, and joys. And that was definitely the truth with Chris. He, you know, we had our little podcast. He had gotten, he had finished an online um, bachelor's program and he got accepted into a, a PhD program in Boston to become a psychologist. Wow. He was, he was working in a sober house in uh, Great Barrington, Massachusetts that one of his best friends owned. And he was uh, like in a loving relationship with this uh, woman who was a beautiful woman who was a pre-med student at Harvard. You know, he had it all. Basically, he was an intern at a school, like being the clinical social worker intern guy. And, you know, I, I mean, I have a theory. I don't know that it's reality. It's just what I believe. And my theory is like, first of all, he obviously wasn't done. And my theory was like the promises were coming true for Chris. Right. The pr but he was like, well, what if the promises can come true and I can get high? You know, and I think and I think like he even said it. We talked about it on the show all the time where we would trace our recovery and where our program was. And both of us were 12 step people. And I still am, you know, and um, so uh, we would. And right before he died, he had stopped going to meetings. You know what I mean? He was hanging out with his girlfriend. He was working a lot. And he said, you know, the last time I relapsed, it was very similar to this. And I was like, dude, then what are you doing? You know, and he, it's like the, the worst thing is when you can survive that much time of such heavy using, you know what I mean? Like he had consequences. He was in prison for a year and a half. He like had a severe head injury. He like, he, he did every drug you could think of to the max, but the, his parents had money. His parents always bailed him out. And, and the, I mean, it's so sad that the consequence that, that did him in was death. You know, it's like, it, and I sound callous when I say it. I don't want to sound callous. I love this guy. Um, and it fucked me up when he died, you know? So, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that answers your question. No, like, no, it does. It does. I mean, um, you know, and, and how, so what, what stands out to me and you hear this a lot is it's hard when someone's not ready and they're at, they're in that part of that life cycle where they just can't really commute. That's, I think it's a part of addiction where you can't really communicate it to anyone, not, not even yourself, where you really, it's that insidious gripping part. And you can't, we call it relapsing in secrecy. I did. That was one of my like fifth. I think that was our sixth or seventh episode where I was trying to explain to people like, look, there's going to be a situation in where recovery is extremely empowering. You're going to get strong. You're going to get your shit together. You're going to feel like you have it all under control. And then you're going to think that you somehow with this newfound empowerment going to be able to still use and get away with it. 
but you're going to be able to do it in secrecy and mask it. Some people would eventually hit rock bottom again and they'll crumble and they'll have the benefit of going back into treatment or some people just die because it's just that secrecy and doing it. It's just crazy. I mean, Chris sounds like he was one of those people so brilliant. Um, you just probably is no one probably really know his pain point. Some people have pain points, trauma, things that they hold in themselves that they just can't get over. Um, and I think we, that yeah. I think that's possible. And I also think uh, because his whole world, every aspect of his world was geared towards recovery and sobriety, that the shame factor of fucking up was like what you're talking about, like relapsing in secret, like he needed to keep the secret because it was, it was, it was too painful to be a fuck up again for him. So, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, right. there's also the secret life of using and all that stuff, but I think he was really on a path where he was like, I can't believe I did this again. Maybe for a second it was nice, but yeah. then it wasn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because you start to feel like, all right, um, you flirt with danger and then you really get trapped inside that dungeon and you know, now I can't get out. You start playing it back in your head like, damn, this monster's big. This monkey's on my back. It's too powerful. Then you feel trapped. You don't know what to do. Man, kudos. You know, uh, we know our hats off to everyone out there. That's why we're doing what we're doing. If you're listening right now um, and putting aside all of the deep stuff, all of the flattery speech, if you're struggling in addiction, drugs, alcohol, whatever, don't worry about there's no consequences in coming clean and being honest and going back to treatment. Don't don't worry about the spectators. It's not about your damn friends and family and your colleagues and your job and your public. Who cares about all that shit? And the wake of your death and your life is, is too powerful to sit there in front. In Brooklyn, we'd be like, son, stop fronting, man. Like, keep it real. Like, keep it 100 Forget all of the bullshit. Nobody cares about that. People is going to reward you. Even if they get a people is going to be initially disappointed, shocked and embarrassed and hurt that you relapsed and you messed up. Some of them's going to say, yo, you're, you're, you're fuck up. Stop fucking up. But then they're going to be like, yo, thanks for being honest, man. Now let's go get you some help. So don't stay in the shame and the stigma and embarrassment of relapsing addiction. So it's your, it's your fifth year anniversary for the dopey podcast, huh? Yes, sir. Tomorrow. I'm very, I'm very proud and very Oh, excited. man. A uh, round of applause for that. That's so powerful. You touch so many people. Um, you know, your podcast attract a lot of famous people, which is excellent because, you know, that's part of breaking the stigma. Um, I want to talk about what inspired you to get into podcasting. I know you guys started out to wanting to just tell really cool um, drug stories and talk about a lot of dumb shit. Um, I was listening to, uh, uh, you know, so one interview you had where you know, your wife or girlfriend at the time was trying to was helping you guys like try to figure out the best way to do this, where it worked, uh, where it wasn't just totally going off on just all of these stories. It was like we have to balance out the recovery side. But I think it's really cool um, that approach, that initial approach. Let's just talk about it. Even speaking about the crazy war stories, the dumb shit, you know, but what was the initial inspiration to even share and put your business out there in that in the front like that? Well, I mean, putting my business out there in the front was the was very scary. And that's why we like we were anonymous. We put the dopey logo over our eye if we were ever in anything. We never used our last names. I had a, a small I had one small child then. She was uh, 
five years old when we started, you know, and uh, all I could imagine was somebody Googling her last name and seeing heroin, 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 heroin. And I was like, I don't want that. And Chris was like, um, he was trying to get his psychology, you know, like his, his, his PhD in psychology. And he was worried that somehow his stories would prevent him from getting his licensure. So we had agreed to be anonymous. And I think we really agreed to be anonymous because then we felt safe. And, um, and another way that we felt safe was I was convinced that nobody would listen. You know, I was so convinced that nobody would listen. We didn't have gear for like six months. For six months, we just talked into the mic on the computer. You know, we just sat there with the computer up, you know, and, and we just like had fun. And, and I mean, then the real impetus for the show was I'm a huge Howard Stern fan. I, I love the Howard Stern show. And um, he had a guy on his show called Artie Lang. And Artie Lang was a is a, a, an addict. I mean, he, I think he's in recovery now. He's an alcoholic. And when he was on that show, he would talk about some of the craziest shit he had done. And while he would talk about it, it would be like this chill time in the studio and everybody would laugh. And I, and I was at home using, and I was like, holy shit, this is interesting to me. And then I had a friend in California who knew about podcasts and I didn't know anything about podcasts. And he was like, Oh, you know, it would be a good podcast would be just drug stories. That would be amazing. And I, and I was using, and I was like, what? I was like, whatever. And I didn't think about it. Then, you know, I work at, I work at Katz's deli and I made a, a YouTube series called the last Jewish waiter. Okay. About a waiter who hates waiting tables and he wants to have a talk show. So he decides to do a talk show while he waits tables. Okay. And I always wanted a talk show. I, I, I was working on television. I always, I love talk shows. I love the relaxing nature of people just kicking it around and connecting and kind of like whatever chilling as entertainment. Like I have always loved that. So I did the talk, the talk show at Katz's and Chris who I met in rehab was like, holy shit, this is great. Cause like people were covering it and it was like getting a little bit of exposure. And he was like, oh, we should do something. And I was like, and Chris like, wasn't creative. He didn't do anything. And I was like, dude, what are you going to do? And then I, but Chris had the greatest stories ever. And then I remembered my friend's idea in California. And I was like, we should try to make a, a podcast about the worst shit we had ever done. And uh, he goes, well, what do we do? And I said, just just come to my to my apartment on the Lower East Side, and uh, and I'll turn on the computer and I'll pretend I'm Howard Stern, and and you tell some drug stories, and we'll kick it around, and um, and we did that, and um, super chill, just super nuts. But at the end of the first episode, I think I was like, hold up, you know, if people listen to this and don't know we're in recovery, we might be glorifying drug use, which is not the point. The point was like. These stories are like the Wild West. They're like criminality. They're like stupid young people trying to do something that's like out of the, the normal realm. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like it's like an adventure. It's like, it's like in 2000, and, and I don't want to glorify anything, but in the 21st century, it's like there's very few things that aren't super controlled. And drug use was something that was out there. You could right. get into some shit. You could, you, and, and, you, and the substances make your brain gets so different that it becomes adventurous. Now that's before there's consequences. And I just knew that there was a lot of comedy in that. So that's where it all started. It just started from the, the potential. And I didn't, 
listen, even to this day, like where people are being helped and like, dude, we sent, we sent eight people to treatment this year for free. You know, we sent eight people to treatment, but I never did it to help anybody. I mean, to be totally honest, I mean, to send people to treatment, I did that to help people, you know? And when I heard that people got something out of this thing, I was like, that's amazing. It does so much for me too. But I did it because I wanted to make an entertaining show. And I did a podcast because I always wanted to have a talk show, you know? And one thing I, 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 I believe deep down that if I made a podcast to help people, it wouldn't have been entertaining. I wouldn't have been able to do it. But so, but if I make an entertaining podcast, somehow it helps people. It's some like weird reverse thing. Right. Right. We're all finding, trying to find that balance. Um, You, you took the other approach. I mean, you know, sometimes on Sober is Dope, it gets really scientific, tough. It gets really like to the point and you just want to, you don't want to put people to sleep. So it's good to find that balance, right? But no, but I listened to you. Me and my wife were just listening to you and we thought you're great. And and like, I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done a a podcast that was geared to help people. And and, and I couldn't have done it. It just wasn't for me to do. I, I could only do this. Right, right, right. This is what I can do. Right, right. Well, um, so something I want to touch on, entertainment, the music aspect, I think we have that in common. Um, You know, I come from a music background, and I think that when I was younger, especially in my 20s, that's when I kind of was like living this whole kind of like hip hop music lifestyle, living that whole go out, hit the clubs, get the bottles, be in the studio, getting getting fucked up. You know how that works. And I think that plays into a lot of addiction and depending on what industry you're in. Right. Um, and then my professional industry was real estate. So I was a young real estate investor out of college. So, you know, we're in all the highs and restaurants, drinking out with the girls, fronting with the limousines. We did it all. Yeah, the yeah. thing was, when you're an addict, you don't get the memo necessarily so <laughs> by trial and error you're like waking up holding the bag the next day and i was kind of one of the guys who's waking up and saying damn man that cigar bar was fun last night but i'm sick and i definitely still want to drink and i would just be like i'm gonna go get a beer to cut the edge and um and then that would lead to a whole day of drink. and then it was just this lifestyle where i was a good kid trying my best but alcohol kept messing up and that's important that creativity needs to it's okay to be creative in a sober environment, right? Most high performers are. Hence, for example, in hip hop, Kendrick Lamar, one of the best rappers ever, kid is sober, right? He writes his rhyme, he doesn't, he doesn't, he chooses not to drink or do drugs. It's important. So on your end, you said that, you know, you was doing music entertainment and you was, you know, you was, you had your drug of choice, methadone, and you were struggling. How did that entertainment industry being in the film world, did that play into the addiction? Um, was, can you attribute that in any way to the addiction? Um, yes, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I came up, I grew up in Manhattan, you know, and uh, I'm 46. So I grew up in the 90s in Manhattan when hip hop was the greatest thing in the world. Right. And uh, and like, you know, I I would freestyle in the stairway in my building <laughs> with my friends and we would hang out and we would get high. We'd smoke blunts and right. I'd take bong hits and whatever. And it was like that was the thing. And um, and I also played in bands. You know, I played in reggae bands and ska bands and I and um the greatest thing about weed for me at first was that I was a neurotic person. 
I was somebody who worried about everything, mostly about like, what did you think of me? You know what I mean? Like that was a huge fear. And I found that when I would smoke weed, it would make me feel less fearful. It would make me feel more comfortable. And I would be able to bust a freestyle no matter how bad it was. You know what I mean? And the higher I was, the easier it was for me to get past my fear. You know what I mean? And I found that to be my whole life after that. You know what I mean? I started smoking weed when I was, I don't know, like 18 or something. And I smoked weed every day until I was like 41, basically. And, um, and I always wanted to, to make TV shows. I always wanted to be a musician. I didn't put the work into music, but TV, like I, I was an intern at MTV in high school and I got on MTV when I was in high school. So like, I had this dream of being on TV or producing TV or whatever. And when I got out of college, I had an opportunity and it just happened to be a pretty rough and tumble place that didn't mind me getting high. Like I supplied them with weed all the time and I supply and like I would take acid or whatever. And like if there were pills, I would take that. And then if there was coke, I would take that. And I went to art school and in art school, heroin shows up. So I tried heroin and I was working really hard to get my own show together. You know what I'm saying? And I got a show together and I got a contract and I, and I was 23 and I lived in low income housing in Chelsea, you know, um, the buildings on, uh, on eighth Avenue. I mean, my dad still lives there. I I lived there my whole life. And um, I got a $300 studio apartment. My mother put me on the list when I was 11 years old and I got the place when I was 19 and I, and and I got like a hundred thousand dollar contract. So like, I was like, I can afford heroin now. And I was so nervous about having a producer job and a hosting job that heroin was the ultimate drug for that because it made me not give a fuck, which is all I ever wanted to not care. You know what I mean? I needed something to make me not care. So it's really like, you know, that classic story of an addict who's uncomfortable in their skin and take something, you know, an external solution for an internal problem. Mine was, you know, fear self-hatred, uncomfortability, and heroin pills. You know, methadone was just because I couldn't afford heroin. You know right. what I mean? Like, okay. But, but, but I, 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 just, I just did those drugs because they made me feel safer being me without me realizing, like, what kind of hell I was in for. Because I, I was in for hell. You know, I had a hellish, uh, you know, 12, 15 years of uh, just – depravity. I I kept that job for, I had a three-year deal. Okay. It was like, it was like 80,000 the first year, 90,000 the second year, a hundred thousand the third year. And I'm, and I was 23 and that was a lot of money when I, you know what I mean? Like it was a lot of money. And, um, I didn't make it to the second year. I was just exaggerating and bragging, but I didn't even make it to the second year. I went to, I got, I got dependent on heroin. I couldn't afford it. And I had to go to detox and they fired me because I was like a piece of shit junkie who like, um, couldn't keep his shit together. And, um, and I never got back to my career. Like that was it. It was very short lived. And then I had, you know, 12 years, basically unemployable living on people's couches, living in a garage. My girlfriend took care of me. Like it was not pretty. And I got on methadone because I couldn't afford using drugs. You know what I mean? Like it was, it, it, it got really, really bad. And I did not find sobriety at all. All I found was failure and, um, and, and, and hustling to get drugs, whatever I could do. And, and then, and then just to make sure that I'm not like blowing myself up in a, in a, 
in a not honest way. For me, hustling to get drugs would be lying to my family and friends to have them give me money. It would be like stealing CDs and books and selling them. That's as far as like I'd steal food, but like I never like did any actual crime. I was never homeless. Like I never like I was a pretty bougie heroin addict. To be, I hear you. you know, to, I be, hear to be totally honest, you know. I, no, I can relate. I was definitely on the bougie side of my alcoholism until the bitter end, where I had uh, a taste of homelessness for those uh, terrible two weeks and. Um, and, you know, I tell them my story. One day somebody threw a cigarette. I looked at that cigarette on the floor. I was going to go for it. Started asking. It was a bad day. It was like, go. it was winter in New York eight years ago. I asked if I was about pan. I tried panhandling. I asked a few people for money, broke down, cried, gave my life back to God. Couldn't do it. Totally right. was at rock bottom. Hated, hated it. I was uncomfortable. And um, it was just hard, you know, and um, but I, def- um, I definitely was picking up cigarettes and smoking. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was definitely doing that. <laughs> I hear that, man. I hear that. It's all up. So I want to ask you, if you could go back and look at the, your younger self prior to using um, and you could talk to yourself or change anything, what would you have replaced besides the drugs to cope with your being f- fearful of rejection, being uncomfortable with yourself, being stuck inside this shell. What would, you know, how did you get over that? Cause sometimes that you still have to get over that as an adult too in recovery. So how do you deal with that? What would you, in retrospect, looking back, what type of mercy or information or advice would you give to your younger self? Um, well, the first thing would be obviously that, that drugs are going to ruin your life. Like that you think it's one, you think it's one thing, but right. it's actually something else. It's not what you think it is. Um, that's the first thing. But like we said in the beginning, you can't tell anybody anything. You know, the person needs to learn for themselves. Right. The thing that saved me is um, was was the twelve steps. You know what I mean? It was yeah. it was it was the twelve steps saved me. And um, you know, I've been really thinking about this a lot. Like um, I didn't, you know, God didn't come to me in an easy way or in a, a particularly natural way. You know what I mean? Like I grew up in, um, my parents were, were public school teachers in New York, both Jewish, but no God. You know what I mean? There was no God in my house. God was like, God damn it. God damn it. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. kind of shit. My dad is a science teacher and he, he, his problem with God is that God divides people in his mind that God makes, uh, you know, Jews hate Muslims and Palestinians hate Jews and Christians, you know, not want to tolerate other people and, and people not getting along. And the idea that that God can put division within humanity made him so sick that he was like, God doesn't exist. People make it up to make themselves feel better. And at the same time, he's a scientist. You know what I mean? Like, right. I mean, so like it's interesting because for me. You know, there, I didn't I like the idea of God and I like the idea of tapping into some bigger spirituality, like when I took acid or I smoked weed, like getting deep, you know, into the cosmic thing. Right. You know, right. Um, and I love that stuff. But, you know, it was not God. You know what I mean? And, and so like when I and I and I failed at getting sober over and over and over and over again. And in the end, you know, my daughter was five. I wanted to put my family back together more than anything. That's all I wanted to do. And I, and I messed it up and I was so desperate. Um, you know, my, my wife was like, you lost custody again. 
and you're going to have to get your clean time back. And then maybe I'll give you custody. And I, and I found myself writing her a letter and in the letter, I'm just begging her to let me smoke weed. That was the letter. And, uh, and it was like an August night, you know, five and a half years ago on, on Grand Street on the Lower East Side. And I'm, I'm typing this letter, begging her to let me smoke weed. And I see myself sweating, chain smoking Marlboros. Like, I'm like, what am I doing? And I was like, I, I got it. It's like, what do I get out of weed? Like the, the, the thing that, that occurred to me with, with drugs was that I got as high as I was ever going to get. There was not a higher place. You know what I mean? I was just like trying to tread water and here I am begging to smoke pot. It's like, because I was too scared to, to, to be sober. I was too scared. So I, I went to a meeting and the dude was like, is this going to be your first day? And I was like, maybe it is. And I went to another meeting and the dude said, we would love it if you came back. And that was a 7.30 a.m. meeting, seven-day-a-week meeting. So that was like the perfect meeting for me. And I, went, and I went every day for a year to that meeting. And I had a sponsor that I didn't like, and then I had another sponsor. And I was as desperate as anybody could be to get this because I had never had any sobriety. I was 41. I had no sobriety. And, and, and I looked at the 12 steps not as something that maybe I could absorb, but I heard rarely have we seen someone follow this and fail. Mm-hmm. You know, rarely have we seen someone thoroughly follow this path and fail. And I hadn't thoroughly followed any path except for drugs and addiction, you know? So mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to do, I'm going to take every suggestion. I was one of those people when I, when I got sober, I was like, I'm going to take every suggestion. I need a higher power. Uh, I believe that the uni- the universe is a beautiful place. I believe the fact that a, a flower is made for a bird or a bee is a- an incredible thing. I believe that you and I, that we're sitting like whatever, probably 40 miles apart, but we feel each other is God. Like all that shit is God. Like like the connection between humanity, the, the sun setting and the-, and the colors in the sky, it's all God. But still that wasn't enough. My sponsor said to me, he was an old Jewish guy, and he said to me, uh, are you desperate? And I was totally desperate. And he said, well, do you have the gift of desperation? And I said, I do. And he said, that's G-O-D. That's your God. Just call mm. the gift of, des- of, of desperation wow. your God. And I was like, wow. I was like, I love that. Wow, you know what me I'm too. I like that. I, like I was that. like, I love that. And, um, and from there, I just did the steps. And, um, and now, right? Right. Um, I pray every morning and, uh, and I have these like, and I, and I have a sponsee and I, and I go to meetings out here with all these fucko guys on Long Island. <laughs> and, uh, but it's okay because it's yeah. like, it's, it's really like a spiritual thing. We meet on the beach in the morning and it's nice. beautiful. Nice. Nice. It's, it's, a, it's another seven day a week, early morning meeting. And I don't know, like, I was reading, I had this very spiritual moment the other day. Can I, can I share yeah, this? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So I'm my sponsee. I have one sponsee. He's a, a 62 year old guy. Um, and he hasn't had a drink in like 25 years, but he didn't work the program. He was totally dry and his wife left him and he asked me to sponsor him because he thought I was funny in the meeting. And, um, and I was like, great. Nobody's ever asked me to sponsor them. I'll do it. And, um, and we're sitting there and we're reading the book and it's the part that says, God is either everything or nothing. You know what I'm saying? It says right. God is either everything or nothing. Kind of like the half measures of veil is nothing thing. Um, and I, and I had this moment where, okay, 
I, I use the 12 steps as a tool to have a better life. I use spirituality as a tool to be a better person. Like that's why I do it. I do it because it works. It's like I use a hammer to build a house or whatever. I use a hammer to fix my desk. Right? I use right. the computer to record the show. I use the 12 steps to make my life easier and better to be better. You know, I use it like a tool straight up. So like when the second step says uh, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity for me, I had to like, like use it as a tool as it, and it wasn't like the sun shining down and the ocean lapping against the beach. I was like, you need to get a higher power to restore you to sanity. So like, so like when I heard that God is either everything or nothing, right. And it's our higher power. That means that our higher power is always here. And all we have to do is figure out a way to tap into it. And the way I, I saw in my head, you know, these solar panels on houses, It's like, if the sun is shining, that house is getting power, right? And then every other house that doesn't have the solar panels, the sun is still hitting them. They're just not accessing the power. So like, it it just was like, well, what if we are walking solar cells for God's power? And I know that's crazy. Nah, it's nice. That's nice. You know, so it's like we we have this opportunity to be because the wind is always blowing. We can be the windmill. We can we can turn that energy into something. You know what I mean? And that's like mindfulness. And that's like, you know, the prayer and the meditation. And that's like and I and I'm not perfect. I got into a fight with my kid this morning because she didn't know the fucking times tables. You know what I'm saying? But, But then it comes back. You know what I mean? We can't be saints, but we can we can bring it back and we can try to access this thing that's free. And it's all powerful. And it just wants us to be cool to our, our fellows. It's it's pretty amazing. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And you know what? You learn something new every day. Um, I'm big with the 12 steps. It's pivotal to my story. And um, the way you explained it is very eloquent. And I, I appreciate that. Like we do have to, we have to access that power. What stood out for me was that vital spiritual experience that they talk about, especially when you read the book, Came to Believe, and you listen, you listen to all of these people, how they came to believe or find a higher power somehow through the process. Um, and that was my thing like i i knew i was like one of those kids i family my brother was a catholic priest um i grew up in the church altar boy i also was one of those kids who was into everything i did martial arts i studied zen i was i knew how to meditate i knew god i was always that person you know and i was fused with the music i would rap deep i was a con i'm a conscious artist and all of this and none of that helped me protected me from my addiction but what I when I hit that rock bottom and I was on my deathbed and it was those final days where I knew I was sick, I was broke, I had nothing. Man, I'm telling you, I reached out and I said that that's the first time I kind of like put I didn't put God on the spot. I just was like, look, I spent my whole life with this with, with faith. I spent my whole life vested in the idea that. I have something out there that's going to protect me. And when I got on my knees in the middle of Brooklyn, I'm talking about it was a public spectacle, people walking by. I was done, man. I was like, yo, I'm throwing the biggest Hail Mary I could throw because this is not it. I'm certain in this moment that this addiction is a trap that's designed by something that's not God, that's something that's extremely evil and dark. To kill us, basically, it's nothing. There's no, there's no way around it. It's the biggest thief, the biggest liar, right? It's like 
whatever's in these drugs in this bottle promises you something and never cashes that damn check, man, and leaves you broken and broken and broken. So I got on my knees and threw that Hail Mary and I swear to everything, Dave, I heard a voice. When I was on that floor, I heard a voice and it was very simple. I felt like everything was, I was just like, I had to allow I closed myself off all of those years. I felt like I, I, when I reached out and gave it all, I've heard this voice that said, get up and go to this hospital, go do this and go. It was just this never ending instruction. I followed it. It was the most bizarre instructions too. It was like, I'm in Brooklyn, but the voice, I had to go to 14th street. You have to go look for a hospital over there. You have to stay there. You have to do. And I said, I'm going to follow it. And I did. I followed everything. And that's the sober is dope story. Um, and when I and I tell you from that day on, when I just got out my way, stopped trying to put intellect into everything, um, you know, thought about my mother, father, my grandparents, my ancestors, the ones who came before us. Think about this whole planet. We're floating in the middle of space at the speed of light and running this little wild. I'm like, this shit is crazy. <laughs> looking at the looking at the babies and looking at the, to the children. I know when you look at your daughter, you're like, there's no way in like there's something, there's a there's a higher power that I cause I know this is too perfect and beautiful. Like I know it's not just me here. It's something else with something. And that's what and that's when I just chilled i was like it's okay to chill and i started to accept myself a little bit more and it sounds like we're both working it out i'm 41 i'm still every day i get up and we're still figuring it out but i think now we have a cool framework where we can look at the past we can look at things and say look it's going to be tough days right it's going to be days where we're afraid it's going to be days where we even doubt the process or we probably you know we we think about the the slippery nature of addiction and that, you know, falling back. And, but we have to bring, you know, we have all these tools to bring it back. So I wanted to ask you, do you ever have tough days? And if you do, what do you do when you get into these spaces where you kind of fall backslide into the negative thoughts, the toxic thoughts, the slippery places, slippery possible people, ideas, anything like that. How do you cope with that? Um, I appreciate everything you just said, by the way. Thank Very, you. I, I love, I love, I love talking to you. There's a lot of fun for me. Just so you know. Oh, thank I, you. I think, that, I think, I think this is very cool. Um, it makes me feel good. Um, I, okay. When I have bad days, right. I have bad days all the time. Like today wasn't the greatest day, but I don't think about using. It's not like, I don't think about like, Oh, if I could only get high, like that doesn't even occur to me for a second. And I'm not being like, I'm not trying to be arrogant about it. It's just, I got my, my ass handed to me by this stuff. And I have, I mean, I think the reason I got sober was because I had good parents and I was a bad parent, you know, for the first five years of her life. And I was just like, I can't be that, you know, and it, it wasn't, and everyone was like, Oh, you did it for her. And it was, I didn't, I did it because I couldn't live with myself. Mm-hmm. Like, like knowing better, and being this no, this, you know, no check kind of person. Like I just, I couldn't do it. And so I know, or forget, I didn't, it's like, you know, people say, I know if I put a drug, I'm off to the races, blah, blah, blah. It's like, I don't know that. I just can't like, I can't contend with finding out. Like, I don't want to know. I can't take the risk. Like there is no, there's nothing. I'm just not there when I have a bad day and I have bad days all the time. I have days where I, I worry too much. I have days where 
Like I worry too much. Like that's my number one thing. I, I have, I have dark thoughts about work or about what's, you know, I'm so crazy obsessed with dopey. Like I wanted so badly to get to the next place. I'm like, well, what if I do this? Or what if I do that? Or we're like, you know, with the COVID and, and like I do catering, there's no party. So I get nervous about this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So what I do when things are bad is I, I call a friend, you know, usually somebody in recovery and I talk about it. If that helps, great. If it doesn't help, um, I call my sponsor and it always helps. And my sponsor always says the same thing. He says, just go home and pray. You know, he, that's all he ever tells me to do. Right. Um, I don't really need to call him. I should just go pray. <laughs> yeah. But the point is that if I turn it over and I, and I say, God, help me follow your path, help me not be crazy. Right. It helps me. It, it helps, helps me not right. be crazy. Right. And I don't have the understanding of how that works, you know, but I don't know how a lot of things work. Yeah, right, right. You know? We don't, we don't. We don't know how this light, like how we get in this light. It's little things, how they put this whole computer. I just know if I turn this computer on, it's going to work. I don't know the nuances of coding and all of that, right? The thing, the thing that gets me, right, is like at the turn of the century, somebody figured out that if you have vinyl wax whatever and you put a needle and you crank it that that needle can somehow record sound and be able to tell the difference between a bass and a trumpet like how could that how did how is that possible it's like (laughs) it's like i don't understand it and i asked science people to to explain it to me and i just it it blows me away so like it's like why should i know that how me asking god to help me helps me right it just does it just does does. that's it i love it and that's enough sometimes and you know what's beautiful that's the edge right so i remember when um when when, you know trigger warning but when i would be like i had a tough bad day and stuff it was in the programming when i grew up just in the whole environment whether it was music whether it's just the neighborhood it's like oh man have you know take a drink take the edge off we'll say take the edge off right and now i'm like you know God is the edge. God takes that edge off. It's just that little bit of ease when you pass it off, when you know, okay, all of the burdens that I'm going, the burden that I'm carrying in my mind and my spirit and my heart, I don't always have to carry this alone. It's okay to unload it. Right. And, and for someone who knows the Bible, you know, I'm not as good as my brother's a priest, but I do remember that God acts as many times in the Bible to just do that, just to Come to come to God in a place where it's like, give him your troubles, give him your burdens, explain it. And remember, you don't have to fight this alone. Um, Joyce Myers has a beautiful um, statement. Where she says the battle belongs to the Lord, where it's like, you know, it's not always your battle It's still like God. God takes accountability for us. We take accountability for our mistakes and, you know, we don't we don't have to fight this shit alone. Right. We don't. And for anyone out there that's listening again, whether you believe in God or not, this is not about religion. This is not about dogma. What this is about is faith and you understanding that you're not alone in whatever darkness that you're in. You could reach out to one of us. You could reach out to other people or you could just say a prayer. Right. Just by saying or asking for help in a personal way could take that edge off. And, you know, that could be the difference between you living today or dying. So don't give up on yourself. And I want to say one other thing though, like when I, um, when you ask me that, it's like, I'm incredibly fortunate that I don't think about using when things get bad because I did, you know what I mean? I would need to take the edge off every time. 
You know what I mean? Like I could totally relate to that. And in my first year, my first six months, I would be holding on to the edge of my seat. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I mean, I used to, I, I couldn't sleep without putting something in me. Like it took right. me like a half a year to be able to sleep. And um, so like it takes time. And, and even if you don't have faith just to ask the universe for help, it right. will respond. You know what I mean? Right. And, and I really, I mean, like they talk about honesty, open-mindedness and willingness. I think willingness is everything. Right. Like if you're willing to take a suggestion and you and everything is bad. Just have a little bit of willingness. And and I and I would not. It's like if I could get it together. Like if I could get out of the pattern that I was in. Anybody can. It was it was not my brain power. It was strictly being willing to to do what somebody said. That's it. Right, right. You follow wise instruction. Um, I remember when I first walked into um, Alcoholic Anonymous the first week in my um, back in 2012, I was like this, this this older gentleman came to me and said, how much time you have? I said, oh, this is my first week or first month. What I forget. It was the initial early stages. And uh, but that was like the real first meeting that I went to. I was I remember it was early in the morning. It was just old people there. They was all old. They were slow. They was old. I'm sitting there. I had a little attitude. I'm still coming. You know, it's been a long road. I'm in rehab. I'm in the shelter with the guys from prison. I'm coming from a one point five million dollar brownstone and I'm like in this shelter now. And I'm happy. I'm like, but I'm still tired. And the guy said, you know what, kid, there's paradise on the other side. Mm. And I had a little attitude like, what? Paradise on the other side, whatever. But me being analytical, I'm sitting there. <laughs> I remember my hands was crossed. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to play hard. And, you know, I'm a little pissed. It's just cold. It's just a bad day. And I kept thinking paradise on the other side. And I kept thinking about it. And every day to this day, I've been trying to figure that out. And I could report back and say to everyone else out there, there is paradise on the other side of choosing yourself and getting outside the addiction because there is, it's just such a night and day from being in that dumbass, dirty, sad darkness of broken despair that we was in. And I, I just relate to so many people because I understand the torment. Um, and the problem with addiction is just, it torments you. And if you're out there, you don't have to get stay stuck there, right? Um, in the memory of Chris, in the memory of my friends um, that are we I lost and everyone that I love, you know, from sober is dope to dopey, you're listening to both of us. We're fighting every day. Choose yourself, love yourself, and bet on yourself. And in time, you'll come to really appreciate the beauty of life on your own terms through recovery um, and not needing to check out all the time with these nasty drugs and substances. So um, Dave, man, I really appreciate you today. You taught me a lot today. Um, Thanks. uh, It's just so much. Thank you. Thank you. You taught me too, man. It's my pleasure. I think this was a lot of fun and uh, super cool. And I really appreciate uh, you having me on. All right. So before we wrap, a couple of things. Are you going to ever get back in the film, man? I'm a film guy. Too. I like to create. You got to do so. Don't give up on that dream, man. You got to make something. Maybe do a movie or something. We got to do a dopey movie down the line or something fly like that. You never I know. know. <laughs> I know. This American Life, you know, the show This American yeah, Life yeah, did, yeah. Did, this, did this big piece about dopey. And then they said they want to make a movie. 
And I like, I basically signed over the film rights to them for this period of time where I'm like going to be a consultant, blah, blah, blah. Nothing happened. Everyone said, no, they're not interested. So in a few months, I think the rights revert back to me. Right. And I'm, I'm going to do something, man. Like I eventually something will happen. I'm going to start doing a lot of dopey video. Like, yeah, because, because like basically I did dopey for five years and I got, you know, like I'm very proud of how far that we took it. Right. Um, I just want this year to be the no stone is left unturned year of dope. Right, right, right. And yo, YouTube is a very uh, amazing opportunity, man. Um, like I just started, we just launched our YouTube channel um, and I've been going crazy. I did 200 to 300 videos in under a year. I just been going nuts, but having fun with it. But just so you know, I have a whole, I have the best, I have a beautiful camera, man. I got a whole team. You ever want to do anything? We in New York. And my my biggest advice now is look, yo, Netflix and all these places, they have so many backdoor deals. They're looking for content everywhere. We just can't overthink it. But as creators, I'm like, yo, that's what we got to do in our recovery. We got to be courageous. I'm definitely going to do the Sober's Dope story because I think we visually can show people exactly how it looks, right? And, And we need more real stories. I think they be making up stuff. You know, we need to tell more true accounts, like based on true events. This actually happened, right? Um, yeah. But no, I, I, I'm, I'm inspired to see what happens. Congratulations, um, Dave, on um, five years of the Dopey Podcast and your recovery. What, well, could you share before we even do that? I mean, I'm gonna mention it. Your recovery date is uh, to 2011. It was, it was August. No, it was August 13th, uh, 2015. Nice. There we go, man. Congratulations. So you doing your thing. Um, I love you and what you're doing. I'm proud of you. Any part in advice and any words you could give to anyone out there struggling with addiction? Um, if you're struggling with addiction, you should give up because it's already over. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Give up. Just give up. And I don't mean give up like it's just you lost, you know, it's okay. That's Put right. your hands up and just walk away. And then, and then this is the best thing. Okay. The best thing is that you already got as high as you're ever going to get. You, you already did that. You, the, the, the possibility of, of life. And I sound like some preacher, but I, the possibility of life and recovery is limitless. The, the possibility of using or drinking is you're going to get drunk. You're going to get high and you're going to have to do it again. That's what's going to happen if you stay on that path. The possibility of sobriety is unlimited. You could do anything. You could do anything except use or get drunk. And if you use or get drunk, you could come back as long as you don't die. So really, my message is give it a shot. Like, what, what the hell else? You know, what, what, is, the, what is the point if not that? And um, I know for me, I, I got sober when I was 41. And I'm 46 now. And if I'm lucky, I'll live to 82. And from nothing to 41 uh, was a life of unfettered debauchery and stupidity. Some fun, a lot of of dumb shit, a lot of failure. At 46, I have two beautiful children. I have a beautiful partner. Uh, I I I have love and I have friends and I have possibility. And like, that's everything. You know, you don't, you know, you don't know where your life can take you. And, and, and I just love the possibility. That's it.
Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from Dave, the founder of Dopey. Um, we sent our love to his co-host, Chris. May he rest in peace. Today's a great day for Sober is Dope because we were able to connect. I love you all. Please make 2021 the greatest year. We did it. You know, we have a new president. It's a new start, right? Uh, today's yeah. a good day. So yes, sir. Uh, that's a wrap. You're listening to the Sobers Dope Podcast. I love you all, and I'll catch you guys on the other side. Thank you, Pop. I appreciate it, man. You're welcome, brother. Please enjoy this song and take a moment of silence for Chris. Thank you.